Welcome to Succession Stories. I'm Lori Barkman. As an exit value planning and M&A advisor, I call myself the business transition Sherpa. This podcast guides entrepreneurs from transition to transaction, from building value in your business to letting go. What do I do when I'm not hosting a podcast? I work with owners to maximize business value with my firm, small.big. And as a certified mergers and acquisitions advisor with Stony Hill, I guide you through the complex process of selling your company. Tune into Succession Stories for weekly insights to reward your hard work and avoid succession regrets. Hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and sign up for our newsletter at successionstories.com. Here's to your success. Is this the year to sell your company? Don't leave your exit to chance. Stony Hill Advisors works with entrepreneurs like you to get ready for what may be the biggest transaction of your life. Learn what your business is worth by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com slash podcast. Meredith Meyer Grelly is the co-founder of the Wiggle Whiskey Distillery. In 2010, Meredith and her family decided to open a distillery in the city of Pittsburgh as the first one since Prohibition. Naming their whiskey after the leader of the 1794 Whiskey Rebellion, Philip Wiggle, they needed Pennsylvania's laws to change before opening their doors. After the past 12 years, their patience and innovation paid off. Wiggle has been the most awarded craft whiskey distillery for five consecutive years. There are many things I loved about my conversation with Meredith. Thematically, we talked a lot about innovation from creating a robust product development process for growth to innovating from a people perspective to manage a very challenging labor dynamic. I appreciate how Meredith hired team members that play to her strengths and over time be less involved day to day. This has enabled Meredith to become a faculty member at Carnegie Mellon University and explore community connections through family business. Enjoy my conversation about creating a business that can thrive without you with Meredith Meyer Grelly. Meredith Meyer Grelly, it is an honor to have you on Succession Stories. We've known of each other for some time now because we are in some of the same entrepreneurial circles in Pittsburgh and also with Carnegie Mellon University as faculty. And it is a pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome. Oh, I'm so thrilled to be here. There's nowhere else I'd rather be this morning. Thanks for having me, Lori. (laughs) Great. I want to start by talking about you and your entrepreneurial journey. Mm -hmm. Tell me, what motivated you to start your business as a co-founder with your husband to start your company, Wiggle Whiskey? Yeah, well, we are both lovers of food and drink, and we really wanted to bring back this regional heritage back to Pittsburgh. So Western Pennsylvania was the birthplace of American whiskey. And we understood that that heritage had really been lost from our region. So we wanted to snatch that back and really build out this amazing story, which is really the part one of American history that revolves around whiskey in this part of the country. And so we wanted to build that back. We are also both you know, very fascinated by food and drink and flavor. In fact, that's really what bonded us from our first date onwards. And so we wanted to do a shared venture and it was natural for it to be around flavor. 
And this was not an easy thing. You don't just launch a distillery and you don't just launch a distillery in the middle of Pittsburgh when the laws on the books prevented you from doing so. There's a little bit of a history lesson here that maybe we just need to share because your journey started with a little bit of a government battle, right? You had to get new legislation to even open your business as opposed to, hey, I'm going to open a Shopify store, (laughs) you know, and push a couple of buttons on the internet. You had to go to the Capitol. You had to go to the state Capitol. Yeah, there were some regulatory hurdles that we had to climb. So we really wanted to create a distillery that was built around education, storytelling experience, where we could help consumers understand how our spirits were made and then sell directly to them, which was a pretty different model than the traditional distributor model that existed in liquor really prior to 2012. So we spent, we started working in 2010 to get this bill enacted that would allow distillers like us, small craft distillers, that would enable us to sell directly to consumers. And we were doing this lobbying effort while we were also building out the distillery. We were having a still built outside of Munich for us. And at the same time, pushing, pushing, pushing for this bill. And that bill came into effect actually on my husband's birthday, two years into our lobbying effort. And we opened the distillery after a public comment period in March of 2012. And this was during the time when craft beers were really on the rise. You were inspired, I think I've heard some of your interviews where you talked about you would walk down the aisle of a liquor store and just feel like none of those products were targeting you. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, we, I mean, we really thought that the traditional whiskey brands in this space had really been focused for decades on a very particular audience. And in our consumer focus groups, when we were starting up and, you know, we had two years to talk to people because we were (laughs) waiting for this law to change. We would ask people, what do you think of when you think of whiskey? And they would almost invariably say something along the lines of an older gentleman sitting on a leather couch, smoking a cigar. And we thought, holy smokes, there is this whole segment of the population or segments of the population that the whiskey industry is just ignoring right now. And so we worked hard to bring those consumers to the table to engage them in learning and fun and what we you know, think of as edutainment to bring them into this fold and to welcome them in and grow our consumer segment and really appeal to a new audience. Is this a family business? Did you bootstrap it with help of family and friends? Who are the investors? Yeah, this is entirely a family business. We've actually have no outside investment. So it's just my immediate family that are owners. And, you know, when you think of family business, I think you often think of generational family businesses where parents or grandparents start it and then hopefully pass it down to the next generation, to the next. For us, we actually posed this idea after we had both, my husband and I had both were in professional careers after graduate school, and we posed it to my parents who were just retired and said, do you want to do this with us? And they jumped in 
wholeheartedly with so much support in every which way, including being our full-time volunteers for many years. But yeah, you know, one of the gifts I think, you know, one of the questions I often get is how do you work with your husband every day? And that to us is actually one of the great gifts of this business. We both had sort of more traditional corporate jobs prior to this. And we were just amazed by how much time we spent with people other than our family. And so that's been one of the real positives to starting a company together. Not to say that there aren't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because I noticed on your website, you know, there's a few Myers and there's a few Grellies. And so it's your your mother, your father, any others from your, your side of the family or your husband's side of the family? Yeah, so my mom and my dad, and then I have two brothers, one who was more involved in the day-to-day for the first number of years of sort of startup phase. And then his wife got a great job in Santa Barbara, and they ended up moving about seven years ago or so out to California. And then I have another brother who's a librarian in Iowa at a university there, and he's certainly helped in the early days as well, but has his own thing. (laughs) Well, history is definitely part of the storytelling for the brand. And you have a brand development background, which if people want to go to wagglewhiskey.com and really try to understand the brand, you've also written a couple of books, which tell the story. uh, And we won't have time today to go into all of the history, but I do encourage people to, to learn more about this fascinating story because it's, it goes back to George Washington, right? He was a distiller and there was a taxation issue. There was violence. I mean, this should be, there's probably already a movie about it. Alexander Hamilton is part of it. And there was an uprising and people said, we don't want to be taxed anymore. We want to, we want to drink our whiskey without the interference of our new government. Is that a fair summary? That's absolutely right. The Whiskey Rebellion, which started in Pittsburgh, was the first test of federal power. This incredible, quirky story that we lay claim to. And then, you know, we have another couple hundred years after that of really interesting alcohol history, which encapsulates many of the robber barons and a number of really pivotal points in early American life. So, alcohol is a great mechanism to get some history done, some education done. It really is. But I'm I'm spending time on this with you because it's illustrative of what, how your brand, you've created a brand literally from scratch, right? Back to having to get the laws changed to doing customer research and understanding who your segmentation is and what will make an, a product appealing to them, which is really what I want to shift into now talking about growth and differentiation. And talk about the product development side, talk about the experience branding, how that's helped your business grow, and maybe just give us a sense of at your pre-pandemic size, which I will talk about the pandemic in a moment, you know, how big did the company get at its largest point? Yeah, well, the company is actually, it continues to grow. It grew throughout the pandemic. We've become more efficient in terms of headcount in large part because of necessity, because of the changing labor force, but the company has grown, and I should say companies because we have a sister cider company called Threadbare Cider and Meat as well. But both are really built on this, like you said, Lori, this storytelling, you know, when we thought about the brands and the companies before we started, we knew we needed a few components to really 
create the rich, nuanced, robust companies that had deep roots that would um, flourish throughout the years. And so we wanted a regional reason to be. Why should we make whiskey or cider here in Pittsburgh? We wanted an agricultural system that would support our production. And so for whiskey, that's rye, corn, wheat, and even some barley. For cider, that's apples. And for mead, that's honey. We needed the real estate, which has turned out to be one of the more challenging pieces of putting these businesses together. And of course, we needed consumer interest. And so with both of those companies, you know, we, we felt that at the start of it, we had all four of those pieces to move forward. And when we had all of those pieces, we felt confident we could create these really enriching experiences for guests that are built largely around history, storytelling, product learning, and interactive experiences that create these long-lasting relationships with our customers. And we're able to do that hopefully in a more impactful way than, you know, the 15 seconds on shelf or two seconds on shelf you get with consumers when they're perusing a liquor store aisle. So that's allowed us to really focus on innovation. I think like you've hinted at, Lori, we've focused about 10% of our production capacity to new products every year, which means that we have a really unwieldy portfolio. We are always sort of pushing on the edges of our production to find new areas of interest, to feed our production team's interests, and also to explore areas that consumers have reported to us that they want us to explore. So that's resulted in some really beautiful products that we think is really sort of our responsibility as a craft distiller to produce. So one of those products, for instance, was um, a saffron Amaro, which we produced for the first time a few years ago. And the story with that product was we heard of this farmer in eastern Pennsylvania in Lancaster. He was bringing back this tradition of growing saffron from crocus flowers, which the Pennsylvania Dutch used to grow in a significant amount to use in things like pot pies, right? And so we wanted to celebrate that piece of storytelling and agricultural history in Pennsylvania. And so we produced this beautiful Amaro with saffron, which is a very expensive ingredient, <laughs> but is really produces a very unique flavor. And in, I should say it was one of our distillers, Michael Folia, who came up with and developed that product and it brought home our, our national innovation award from our industry. So it's those kind of products that um, it would be harder for a large distillery to dedicate resources to bringing to life, but which we feel is really our role in the industry to continue to dream up and produce that kind of product. I love that you said you have 10% of your budget dedicated to innovation. Do you have someone on staff whose role it is to lead your innovation processes? Yeah, we actually, it's now bred in the bone throughout the team. So we use a pretty robust innovation um, step process where we develop our new products and we have uh, are constantly training uh, cross-functional team members in that process so that we have a bi-weekly innovation 
um, get together where we um, look at all the products in the pipeline and continue pushing forward on ones that are working and talk about customer discovery on those that are in process and kill projects that don't make sense anymore. But really we have one leader on the production team who is really the project manager for um, both companies for innovation. And then um, we have cross-functional team members from across the company participate in the customer discovery work for new products because we think it's important that front of house team members, sales team members, marketing team members sit with customers on a regular basis and listen to what they are saying and telling us and um, really hone in on that empathy that we try to maintain throughout the organization. Listening is a really powerful tool. Asking the right questions and really listening, it doesn't cost a lot to do that. It's really the cost of time and organizing it, but so powerful. So it's exciting that you have such a robust process. And I should have had you talk about the size of the company, maybe some of the locations. Just, you know, I'm in Pittsburgh and I've, I'm a customer of yours. I've been to, you know, your, your thing is your first building and the distillery in the strip district, which is really, a, is it fair to say that's the flagship location? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a few locations for Wiggle whiskey, and then we have two locations for Threadbare Cider in Western Pennsylvania. So our locations are in the strip district. Um, that's where our distillery is, where we produce all of our spirits. And we trek them across the 16th Street Bridge to our barrel houses on the north side of Pittsburgh where they age. Um, that is also the neighborhood. That's the neighborhood of PNC Park where the Pirates play and the Andy Warhol Museum. That's also where our cider house, Threadbare Cider in Mead sits. And then we have um, bottle shops in um, our region's sort of luxury mall called Ross Park Mall. And we believe we're the first um, craft distillery or cider house in the country to locate in one of those in a mall like that. Um, Simon is um, the property holder there. Uh, we have a wiggle location at um, the Allegheny County International Airport. Um, and we're looking um, at additional sites now for potential future additional locations. And then outside of well, within Pennsylvania, we're distributed in about 300 stores. So if you're near a fine wine and good spirits store, uh, you can find our spirits there or a giant eagle. You can find our cider there. And then beyond Pennsylvania, we are distributed in about a dozen states. That's amazing. And happy anniversary. This is your 10th year as a business, is it not? Thank you. It is. It is. Yes. It's a long journey my to get there. Yeah. <laughs> Your daughter, she's it's the same age as my daughter. Yeah, <laughs> business and oh, so you launched a lot of things at the same time. <laughs> grown up together. Yes, it was not <laughs> not planned that way, but that's how it happened. <laughs> so it's family business and uh, business of the family. I got you. Yeah. Well, that's that's awesome. Who is your most important customer? The person who buys your business. Stony Hill Advisors works with owners to maximize the value when you're ready to sell. Get started today with a business valuation by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com slash podcast. Let's talk about the pandemic. Lots of companies had to go through some changes 
And what, you know, I've been recording this show pretty much since the beginning of the pandemic. And it wasn't always a focus of the show, but it was somehow we talked about it. And it was always really around the theme of resilience. How are we getting through this tough time? It feels now, here we are recording this, and I'm about 100 conversations almost into this theme of how do we continue forward? How do we grow? How do we transition? How do we innovate? Mm-hmm. With the benefit of the rearview mirror now, when you look back on the last couple of years and the changes that you may have had to make in the business, whether they continued on or they were temporary, maybe you could talk a little bit about that of the company's experience and your experience as a leader during the height of the pandemic. Yeah, the pandemic for us was, um, you know, there were challenges and there were gifts. At the start of it, we had just renovated our our main location, the distillery, three and a half million dollar expansion to include a new restaurant, bars, um, new tasting room, bottle shops. And we opened on Friday, March 13th. Two days later, the governor shut it down. So we were open, you know, for 48 hours or so before the first shutdown. And at the time that felt devastating. Um, And shortly thereafter, Governor Wolf announced the closure of our state-owned liquor stores here in Pennsylvania. And so all of a sudden that happened one evening and, um, you know, we went to bed, not thinking much of it. And then in the morning, we woke up to an entirely new world uh, because we had worked, oh, about five or six years before that to change another law that would allow us to ship our spirits directly to uh, consumers in Pennsylvania and also by right to folks in Washington, D.C., and we were successful in changing that law, um, but we were very unsuccessful in the marketing of that change. So we were just never able to, we we're not big enough, our marketing was not strong enough to convince consumers that they could or should buy their spirits online. The pandemic, of course, changed all of that. Once uh, Governor Wolf shut down PLCB stores, consumers across the state found our website. (laughs) And overnight, that segment of the business, which was fairly nominal um, up to that point, became a really significant piece of the business. And we knew our time was limited. We had, you know, we didn't know what the length of time would be for um, the state stores would be shut down, but we knew it wasn't going to be forever. And so we really took full advantage of it. We invested um, a significant amount of money into online marketing during that period. And that has held um, since since the pandemic, we've been able to hold on to really that consumer behavior. Um, And, you know, we had over the years cultivated a significant following through our e-newsletter, through um, social media and but never felt fully able to activate on that because of this consumer reluctance to ship spirits. Um, and again, the p- pandemic really did the consumer education work for us. Um, so that was a great gift. Um, you know, I think every business owner probably something that's more relatable to those outside of our industry than the e-commerce world, which is you know, newly opening up to spirits. Um, something more universally relatable is probably the labor issue, which I'm sure every business owner is contending with in some way or another. Um, and we had really 
we had started a pilot program um, aimed at retaining um, particularly our production team members uh, pre-pandemic where we instead of doing the traditional annual review raise every holiday season you know that kind of thing we started putting together growth plans that were metered out every three months with raises and um, mini promotions um, on a much more frequent basis. And we found that that aided retention significantly. And so throughout the pandemic, you know, it was only natural that we started to deploy that um, over a variety of other groups across the company. Um, and that's helped us um, certainly to actually grow retention over this period, which is a strange thing to say. Um, and we've also been able to really consolidate roles that were once, you know, once we relied on a lot of part-time labor. And we've found that we've really had to shift that model so that now we're really built on far more full-time roles um, uh, to remain competitive in the labor market. And I don't see that piece shifting um, too soon. So was the shift, I think I saw numbers wise, you were maybe you were 100, there was over 100 employees at some point, and I, I don't want to get the number wrong, 168, I think I saw. Yeah, that's about, about right. right. And then what would you say you're today after all that optimization and, and, and um, shifting of roles and strategy? I want to say somewhere just below 100. Wow, so that's pretty significant. So as with anything, there's trade-offs. So you you shifted the, the labor cost dynamic, but then you also had increases because you've been implementing your performance management system and, and implementing raises. So that it's an amazing story because of the lessons learned around retention and you figure that out early on. Was that something from an intuition standpoint as managers and leaders that you knew that you were sensing that could be something of interest to your people or did it come more organically from them? We um, had been trying to get our heads around this for some time because we felt, you know, I'm, I'm an elder millennial, <laughs> but as such, I sort of ascribe to probably not the true heart and soul millennial mindset. Um, and, you know, the we have a wide ranging staff um, in terms of demographics, but truly folks who tend to be um, who tend to find us for jobs tend to be in that, um, you know, 25 to 35 year old age band. And what we found with those um, staff members was that they had even pre pandemic, very different expectations around what career trajectories should look like. So, you know, my husband and I both, you know, were at these corporate jobs where he was a corporate lawyer and it was, you do this associate thing for seven years and then you become a partner and hopefully get a few good jobs in between and some bonuses, but that's the deal. And I had a similar, you know, seven years to marketing director with incremental raises, but, it, you know, biannually, um, but like two years to get, you know, and that just didn't fly. It just didn't fly. And so we probably spent the first couple of years saying, oh, why are these kids expectations so wildly out of whack? And then we said, you know what, we got to stop sounding 
like that. We have to figure out how to meet the needs of our team members. And this, this model that we've been operating under just does not. Um, and we're not gonna accomplish anything if we keep asking, why doesn't it? So we, we just committed to rethinking everything and being very open to um, what their needs and asks were, you know, as much as the business could, of course, support. Um, and we've found that it's been far more successful this way. We've also gotten rid of the annual performance review. Now we just focus on growth plans. Um, and we've, you know, we have <laughs> a team member who's been with us for eight years. And, you know, when we did that, she said, oh, thank goodness. I just never felt good after yeah. a performance review. Even if it was a good performance review, I just never felt good. But I feel good every time I talk to a team member about their growth plan. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. What a difference. Yeah. Congratulations on that. Now, we're going to talk about you and your transition as a leader, because as the founder, co-founder, you're there day to day, the blood, sweat and tears. Mm -hmm. You know, this is not an easy ride as an entrepreneur. We, we all know that. And here you are at this point, you know, we're recording during the day. You're not at the office. <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're in a different place and you're recording with me. And also you're a faculty member at Carnegie Mellon. So there was a time shift there for you over some period of time. And I wanna talk about that, I wanna explore that. When did you start to think about stepping away from the day-to-day -day? and how did you make that happen? How did you become replaceable, right? If someone else is helping lead your role on more of an active basis in the operations or in marketing, whatever, whatever role you played the most, you know, spent the most time. Mm -hmm. Can you share a little bit about your experience there? Yeah, this happened for us in stair steps, in sort of realization stair steps and action stair steps. So it wasn't a revelation all at once or a belief. You know, I think for a long time we felt like we shouldn't be doing the things that we're doing. <laughs> this isn't, you know, the level of detail at which we're operating is not good for the business, but we still couldn't figure out quite how to extricate ourselves from some of them. Um, and what I found is that you just have to extricate yourself <laughs> and people will fill in. They Rip will. off the Band-Aid. <laughs> yes. The first step really uh, for us was, you know, pre-pandemic, we started um, developing these growth plans for leaders and saying, here's where we want you to be in, you know, over the next two years. And really, we created those in part by parceling off things that we really felt we shouldn't be active in. Um, and we said, we're going to be patient about this. You know, we're looking at it from a two to three year view. And then the pandemic happened and all of that accelerated because we're a hospitality business, you know, a part of it. We're also a manufacturer or, you know, there, there's a lot of pieces to the business, but part of it's hospitality. And so when our hospitality operations shut down over the pandemic, we had all these team members. We didn't let any full-time team members go. So we had people that we could really focus on their development. Um, and so we became much more um, active in that leadership development, feedback, um, actively managing people's growth plans. And then um, for me personally, Carnegie Mellon a year ago approached me about a full-time um, role. I had been adjuncting, as you know, um, in the entrepreneurship um, uh, courses uh, at Tepper 
for a couple years and they said, this full-time role has opened, would you be interested? And I said, well, let's, you know, now we've got four months to really get everybody, um, make sure everybody's okay. And then I'm going to do it and that'll be the test. So we doubled down on the growth plans from spring through summer last year. And we attached financial incentives to the growth uh, to each individual leader. And lo and behold, they all met <laughs> the growth targets. Um, and in the fall, I really truly stepped away because I just had to um, uh, because of this new other obligation. And I will tell you, I, the business is running now better than it did when I was trying to micromanage everything, um, which is a terrible tactic and one that I employed far too much. <laughs> um, and everyone, everyone, including, you know, all of our team members, my family, everyone is much happier this way. That's a great illustration of what I talk about a lot on this show is it's somewhat counterintuitive to say to a business owner, your business will run better, you'll be happier, and it'll be more valuable if you can step away and your business can thrive without you. You are now a case study. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's, that's great. And I think I heard you say in an interview that you did when you talked about surrounding yourself with the right people. Some people do strength finders and they figure out, oh, I'm really good at these things. I'm not so good at these things. Let me hire people around me that can really boost up the areas that I'm not so strong. Mm -hmm. I heard you say that you hired to your strengths. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I don't know if this is the right strategy, Lori. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, you know, definitely in terms of replacing myself, the things that wiggle the brand and the company and threadbare the brand and the company are built on our uh, quality innovation, uh, storytelling, experiential marketing, all of that, you know, we've really built an internal team that is very proficient at. Um, and those are all the things that I love <laughs> um, and, and have been able to train uh, team members in and, and have also just been able to attract like-minded people too, who wanted to grow a company in that way, because that's, you know, they see it in the company. And so they're attracted to that as well, because like attracts like in that way. I think um, the areas that um, are less interesting to me um, are areas that were probably less developed in. And I don't think that's ideal, but that's how the company has has developed. And I think there's opportunity to grow the company in those other ways with some outside talent that's already um, baked a little bit. Because, you know, a small company, our capacity to train and grow and develop is limited. Um, I would have a hard time you know, training and growing team members in areas that I was not proficient in. And so hiring outside experts in those areas, I think is a wise move. Um, but we've generally focused on growing internal talent and that has, the focus has been on our internal strengths. And so the plus side to that, you know, there's pros and cons to developing internally versus you know, hiring from the outside. And of course it's not mutually exclusive, but we've always 
emphasize the internal growth. And now we have a set of directors who have been with the company, you know, a 10 year old company for between six and eight years and can really, you know, not only can they run the company, they've built the company with us. And so that's the benefit. That's incredible. You should be really proud. And I know Pittsburgh's proud of you. This is a city that that really admires what you and your family have done. Let's switch gears a little bit as we wind down this conversation. And for what's next, for what's next for you, maybe with some work you're doing at Carnegie Mellon, some things you and I have started to talk about specifically there with family business and some work that you're doing. How are you fostering innovation and entrepreneurship and family business? And what's the role that you see Carnegie Mellon playing in that potentially? Yeah, well, I am really excited that Carnegie Mellon asked me to think about community connections when they hired me. And I, the way I thought about it um, is really through family business because 80% of the global economy um, is represented by family business. And family business has these interesting um, assets to it that make it pretty distinct from uh, other forms of business. For instance, family businesses are more likely to be run by women, by immigrants. Um, and it's a way that family business is a way that communities across the country have built wealth for their residents um, and really built community identity. So for all of those reasons, I was very excited to propose a family business course to Tepper, which is the first time in recent history that Carnegie Mellon has offered any curriculum around family business. So we ran that in the fall and it was wonderfully rewarding um, to teach it. And we were able to develop really significant relationships with students who come from family businesses and prove to the university that this is an area of great interest to our community. Um, so I will be continuing with that family business work this coming year. We'll be bringing in speakers specific to family business at Carnegie Mellon that will be open to the community. Hopefully Lori will be a speaker um, in our family business series. Uh, and we will continue on with this course, we will also be offering to both our students and the general um, Western Pennsylvania community, um, a peer uh, support uh, group model uh, where we will have six or seven uh, family business owners in a group that will be facilitated by a Carnegie Mellon faculty member or alum. Uh, and we hope that, you know, we were excited to facilitate these groups, but we believe that these groups will flourish and exist beyond the Tepper campus, as well as the members get to know each other on pretty significant um, levels. Uh, and beyond that, we're excited to continue to grow the family business programming at Tepper and meet this need of our students and of our community that we think um, right now is there and waiting for us to tend to. That's awesome. And you have such a strong community building background. We didn't even touch on all of that, but as our audience learns more about you and they read about you and your company, they'll certainly see that. Why don't we ask that now? I mean, there's two last things. One is how to how to find more information about you, Meredith, and Wiggle Whiskey and Threadbare. And if people want to connect with you, what's a great way to do that? Yeah, so you can 
head to uh, wigglewhiskey.com or threadbarecider.com for information about the companies. And then I'm happy to connect with anyone on LinkedIn. Um, I'm listed under Meredith Meyer Grelly on LinkedIn. Perfect. And I know you're a very inspiring person. Are there any quotes that inspire you that you would like to share? So I often share with my students this T.S. Eliot poem, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, because I think it's actually a little bit about entrepreneurship, <laughs> among other things. So I have some lines from that that I'd be happy to share. Um, all right. And I'm paraphrasing here, so it's not exact. And <laughs> And indeed, there will be time, there will be time, there will be time, time for all the works and days of hands that lift and drop a question on your plate, time for you and time for me, and time yet for a hundred indecisions, and for a hundred visions and revisions before the taking of a toast and tea. So I know entrepreneurship can feel relentless at times. But that's to allow yourself some patience, give yourself some grace as you move through your own entrepreneurial venture. That's a beautiful, beautiful quote. Meredith, thank you so much for coming on Succession Stories and sharing your story about growth, innovation, and transition in the company that you have built from scratch. So thank you. Lori, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. You can always catch Succession Stories on any of your favorite podcast players or YouTube. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the show. And if you want to maximize the value of your business and plan for a future transition, please reach out to me for a complimentary assessment at meetlauriebarkman.com. Tune in next week for more insights from transition to transaction. And until then, here's to your success. My objective is for you to have a lucrative and successful succession. If you want to understand the value of your company today, that's a great place to start. The sooner you understand what creates value and what detracts from it, the more time you'll have to close the gap if there is one. Hundreds of business owners have taken my complimentary business assessment. As a first step, schedule a call with me by visiting meetlauriebarkman.com. That's meetlauriebarkman.com. Dot com.